0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast
1: with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, April 18th, 2022, as we bring you a new show after the Chicago White Sox just wrapped up their six-game homestand. Against the Seattle Mariners and Tampa Bay Rays, Two teams that I think are serious contenders to make the postseason in 2022. And the Chicago White Sox won both series. And they went 4-2 and two during the homestand. That's great. They're currently 6-3, and three, which is the best record in the American League. That's great. We'll talk about how the White Sox have started, which is a bit different. And how they are achieving this success that we thought it would take after all the injuries after spring training and the beginning of the season. Later in the show, we'll preview the White Sox visiting Cleveland for four games to face the Guardians, and then they have a weekend visit to Minneapolis for three games. How many wins during this seven-game American League Central road trip would be satisfactory? We'll share our answers later and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And Jim... Like I mentioned, the White Sox are 6-3. They've won three series in a row. They currently have the best record in the American League. How have they done that?
2: They've done it by luck, kind of. Just having good fortune. I mean, when you uh, score eight runs against the Tampa Bay Rays over three games and win two out of three, um, you know, that's a little bit fortunate, I think. But... You know They've also had bad luck with the injuries they suffered early, so it seems like a case where it's not like saying that the White Sox are lucky to be 6-3, and three, just more along the lines of they're having some good fortune, but they're also getting a pretty deep performance that I think helps uh, the White Sox have a little bit more to offer than other teams that aren't maybe getting all their pieces clicking at the same time. I'm thinking about a bullpen that like Aaron Bummer is shaky and Liam Hendricks has been a bit wobbly, although Hendricks has been better when he's not working three out of four games. But all of a sudden, like a Jose Ruiz comes up, a Bennett Souza looks better than you might have thought. And so that's a case where, you know, Tony La is able to take some chances and extend his bullpen a little bit, stretch it out, uh, you know, kind of rearrange the leverage ladder along the way. And the White Sox don't look worse for the wearer. I think their starting pitching has taken nice strides to advance an inning beyond what they threw the previous time uh, and, and to no ill effects. So I think there's uh, you know, some luck, but also I think some careful planning. We, we saw some of that careful planning disrupted with Lynn and Giolito going down. But we've also seen some careful planning with Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech and, and Dallas Keigel so far. Even Vince Velasquez as frustrating as it is to watch him like I think he's done a decent job in terms of giving the innings that the White Sox thought he could give them you know so far I think that planning has worked out fairly well
1: yeah the Vince Velasquez start on Sunday I didn't really want to talk about it because that first inning was absolutely brutal it started off great and then it became a disaster real quick it's the Vince Velasquez experience and that's <laughs> a- just what we're gonna to have to deal with until some of these guys get healthy or Johnny Cueto is healthy enough and prepared enough to start some games.
2: Yeah. It's his career in 35 pitches, basically that first inning. Um, But (laughs) he did do a nice job of coming back. And I think with him and Reynaldo Lopez, it's a matter of competing with what they have. And if they get wrecked, then they get wrecked. But I think, you know, like when you're like a guy like Velasquez, who, you know he's on kind of his second chance because I don't know if I consider the Padres his late season cameo with them a second chance. This is like his you know official second chance, given that he's you know had a preseason a team that's definitely wanted him as opposed to a team like the Padres that was looking for any late season pitching help that had a pulse. So I I think you know he might be nervous to give up like eight runs over two innings on. Nine hits, you know, so I think he tends to nibble a little bit. You know, he also has just the natural problems he's had developing that secondary pitch. But he's also flashed like a swing and miss slider at times, a swing and miss curveball at times. So he's still working through some stuff. I'm not, I shouldn't say I'm giving up on him because I wasn't really holding out hope for him to begin with. I'm kind of in this limbo state to where like, I'm naturally accepting that Vince Velasquez getting starts through the rest of the month until Johnny Cueto comes up. Knock on wood that, you know, nobody else gets hurt and he has to start for longer. But I'm more or less just like trying to keep an open mind with what he has uh, and and hoping that like between him and Jimmy Lambert uh, are basically guys who you hope can give three to four innings where the game is not of hand. And considering on Sunday that Velasquez left after four and two thirds innings, the White Sox had a chance to take leads. Mm hmm. You know, if, if say, like, Grandal had a better at-bat or Josh Harrison had a better at-bat with with, uh, fewer than two outs, like, we're talking about a game where, like, maybe Vince Velasquez leaves with the lead. So I think when when you have his expectations, he's more or less doing the job. Like, I don't think it's worth getting angry about Vince Velasquez yet. Like, there was a Sunday game where the White Sox had a chance to go for the sweep. Velasquez didn't cost them the game. Tony La put out a lineup that was not a Sunday lineup. It was a lineup that, you know, could have won. Uh, The offense just didn't get it done. So I think at that point, you just have to look at it and say, like, well, that's Velasquez crossing a day off the calendar, which is what you want from him.
1: Let's talk about the White Sox offense because, in my opinion, the White Sox are 6-3 in large part, and this is the surprise, the pitching. We thought that the pitching, with all the injuries and not being 100% ready to go to start the season, they've been holding up. And in the first two games of the series, the White Sox won 3-2, to two, and they scored nine runs in the series. Gavin Sheets added a home run in the ninth inning, so we didn't want to discredit Gavin Sheets' home run. But that's three straight games where the White Sox only scored three runs against Tampa Bay. And we know how tough it is to score against Tampa Bay. They are very effective in the run prevention side. But the fact that the White Sox, with the offense as cold as it is, and we're going to talk about that offense here in a second, I think the White Sox are six and three because the pitching continues to step up. And it's also due to the fact and the depth that they've had. And, you know, you mentioned two of them, Bennett Souza and Jose Ruiz. We're going to talk about Ruiz later in this segment as we recap the series. But it is impressive and how well the White Sox have been pitching and keeping their opponents to a minimum when it comes to runs scored. It's just that the bottom. Fell out on Sunday and yeah, you're going to have clunkers here and there, but they continue to win these series in large parts, thanks to their run prevention. Now the white, the white Sox offense, mm-hmm. I get it. The weather is cold. I sound like I have a cold because I sat in the stands for all three games and now I have a head cold <laughs> because it's just been a cold wet weekend in the city of Chicago but through nine games in 2022, the White Sox have only scored 38 runs. That's 4.22 runs per game. That's well below what I, my expectations for this White Sox offense as a whole. As a team, their slash line is a 228 batting average, a 276 on base percentage, and they're slugging 384. That's not good. And when you compare them to the other teams in Major League Baseball, they rank 20th in batting average. They ranked 27th in on-base percentage. Here's a surprise. Their sluggy percentage, even though it's below 400 as a team, ranks 14th in Major League Baseball. We're not seeing a lot of power to start the season. And some odd stats as well. They have the third fewest strikeouts. We talked about that last week after Detroit. Really impressive that they cut down the strikeouts. They have the second fewest walks in Major League Baseball. This is a lot of balls in play right now and not getting a ton of results. Luis Robert is now hitting 194 with a 216 on base percentage and slugging 389. He did not make very good contact against Tampa Bay all weekend. Aloy Jimenez is hitting 222 with a 267 on base percentage and slugging 333. Gavin Sheets hit that home run, but he's hitting 188. Yasmani Grandel is hitting 160. Well, we saw that last year, but he's not walking. He's got a 222 on base percentage and slugging 280. And Jose Abreu, we finally saw him hit a home run. He's hitting .212 with a .297 on base percentage and and slugging .364 through the first nine games of the season. But when it comes to Jose Abreu and the White Sox overall, I am not panicking about the offense because as you wrote, Jim, on SoxMachine.com on Sunday, and it's a fantastic article. If you haven't read it, definitely go check it out. Based on the quality of contact that Abreu made and me being in the stands watching the game, especially the Friday and Saturday games against Tampa Bay, Jim, if those drives were hit in the summer, Abreu would have four home runs this series. So many of his line drives reached the center field warning track and they just died. Mm -hmm. Launch angle was great. The exit velocity off the bat was great. I got out of my seat. And I thought they were gone and they hit the center field wind and they just died (laughs) and they fell into the outfielder's gloves. Uh, And he only ended up with one home run for the series. But as you wrote, looking at the quality of contact for Abreu, are we seeing a different approach to start the season for Jose Abreu compared to past seasons?
2: It does seem like you know he's selling out for power a little bit more. He's not trying to go for the all-fields approach. Although, on Sunday, he still showed the ability to do that. He got the White Sox on the board in the hit column with just a, a kind of a classic opposite-field single, just uh, taking what the defense was giving him. The shift was basically radical to the left side with the second baseman behind the second base bag and first baseman playing close to first and so just kind of just punched a single right through there it was uh there for the taking and Mm -hmm. he took it so he still has that ability but i think when you look at last year and you look at the the power numbers where he hit 30 homers and drove in 117 rbis and you look at that and say that's a good season and it is but you also look at the 261 average career low uh 28 strikeout rate thereabouts career high uh, double plays, career high, uh, and league leading total at that. Ground ball rates, uh, I think career high or close to it, going in the wrong direction. So you see those stats and you see like, well, you know, that's a case where that might be going in the wrong direction. And, and you know, if you hit too many ground balls and you hit too many double plays and your strikeout rate's going up, like that's a case where it's harder to capitalize on the fly balls you have to hit the 30 home runs and say like if he's the same guy he was last year, and the fly like, and he's hitting these fly balls now, and they're not leaving the park. Those could be fly balls that are not there later, and all of a sudden he's hitting you know at the end of the season, late September, he's barely topping 20 homers uh, because of bad home run luck or bad fly ball luck on the few fly balls he's hitting. So it was a dangerous road he was on you know maybe he's talented enough to where like you can't necessarily look at the components and say like well he's on a straight slide to hell <laughs> he's just he's uh that good and he has many swings so you you sometimes give him the uh, benefit of the doubt and say like he's trying to do this now but I think in this case like the way he's swinging uh he's taking more pitches than usual he's hitting far fewer ground balls than usual it does look like you know he might be in a mid-30s Albert Pujols phase or a mid-30s Frank Thomas phase to where you say like, well, singles aren't going to do me a whole lot of good now. And ground balls aren't going to do me any good. Like if I'm hitting 30 double plays a year and I'm batting in the 260s, all of a sudden I might be batting in the 240s relatively speaking because of all of the extra outs I'm making. Uh, so, you know, that hurts more when I'm not doing more with the contact around those double plays. I need to avoid that somehow. And if I hit 260, but with say... 12 double plays instead of 24, all of a sudden, you know, if that's complemented by 30 home run power and who knows how many doubles and such, uh, all of a sudden, that's a way more useful way to hit 260. And Frank Thomas, despite his ankle issues and feet issues, he was able to get a few extra good years, both at the White Sox at the end and then Oakland and Toronto just by selling out for power. Holes, not necessarily able to do that, so with the Angels, uh, but, you know, still his value was being able to hit the ball over the fence. You know, Carlos Lee, he kind of, you know, his success late in his mid thirties kind of dried up when he was not able to hit for power. So I think, you know, when you, when you're faced with that kind of conundrum, I think the, the solution is to try to put the ball over the fence, even if it comes at the expense of batting average. And so like, I'm not necessarily saying that Abreu's doing that or that's going to happen. You know, this is Three series. It's cold. It's a, It could be just a way for Abreu to contend with the April slump he always deals with. And then as the weather warms up, he goes back to his old self. But it is worth monitoring him at this stage in his career because there are some undercurrents that aren't necessarily great. And so he's probably smart to monitor those and say like, well, how do I not get swept away and just end up in batted ball hell? And I think uh, so far, you know, this, even though it's not working out for him in terms of all of the fly balls that are dying on the warning track, I think it's a smart approach. And, you know, should he get uh, 10 to 15 degrees of Fahrenheit behind him, perhaps uh, we're talking about a completely different set line.
1: I 100% agree with you because I would tell Jose Abreu to do to make no changes, continue to do what you're doing. Because when you pull the StatCast data, and you did it in your column, Jim, but updating after the Sunday games, Jose Abreu is second in Major League Baseball in hard hit rate, which is the percent of percentage of balls in play with an exit velocity greater than 95 miles per hour. 69.6% of the balls in play by Abreu have an exit velocity over 95 miles per hour. Do you know who's first, Jim? Andrew Vaughn? Christian Yelich.
2: Okay. I didn't know if that was a trick question or or actually legit great player. And Yelich, when he's functioning right, is. Yes. But Abreu is leading Major
1: League Baseball in average exit velocity of 98 miles per hour. And typically, the batting average, if that's your average exit velocity, is usually over 600. And as I mentioned, Abreu's not hitting 600. So I think luck has not been on Abreu's side to start two thousand twenty two. But if he keeps up these exit velocity numbers, Jim, I think his luck will eventually turn and we maybe get August Abreu earlier this season, then waiting for August first to watch him become a mythical god descending from the heavens and wrecking all pitchers in his path.
2: Yeah, but yeah, last April his like ground ball rate was you know well above fifty percent. So even if it's just a way to say like, "Well, April me sucks," so I'm just gonna try to uh, yeah be a different guy because this is normally isn't a great month for me anyway, and I have the talent to shift modes and shift approaches and 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 dial up the power here and then dial it back here. Like that could very well be his talent. It's well within it, so that'd be that'd be great. So Abre used one example, and we
1: got this question from one of our Patreon supporters. From Patrick, and Patrick, thank you for your continued support. And he wrote to us about this very topic. What do you make of the differences between the White Sox actual and expected slash line? So the expected numbers you can get on Baseball Savant, expected batting average, expected on-base percentage, expected slugging, based on the StatCast data. And Patrick is asking, is positive regression on the way, or is something like the weather suppressing the home-run friendly nature of Garrett Field.
2: Well, I think part of it is the weather, but um, yeah, part of it may be that like uh, we just might have to be a little bit more cynical because I saw a Joe Sheehan uh, tweet this and I'm, I'm going back to his account. Um, he said during the game, uh, you know, he, he was pointing out low scores and he said beforehand, you know, without context saying curious to see who the league will blame this year instead of admitting it effed up the baseball. And then uh, shortly afterwards, he retweeted Jason Collette, who uh, he works for RotoWire and Fangraphs. He said, "Exhibit one of many." Uh, he's talking about Tim Anderson's uh, robbed home run, uh, saying that exhibit one of many already that would have been a couple rows back last year. Ball was crushed and robbed at the wall by low. It was 104 miles per hour off the bat, 28 degrees of launch angle, 9:30 expected batting average, and you know you look at it off the bat, and you know it's sometimes Anderson's contact you know, like the way he just kind of finishes his swing. Like sometimes it's off the end of the bat, dies 275 feet away from left field. And you're just like, oh, that was just how he finished his swing. But that one he did, like the the ball had the jump. You know, I watched the replay of it. And like, no, that that shot off the bat. Like I should have been excited watching the center field camera. And that, yeah. And and Lowe took a bad route. He cut in and then straight back and somehow still robbed it. It was a great recovery by him. But that was disheartening. But I think like, you know, I thought, maybe I'm just you know maybe that's overly cynical which you know Joe Sheehan is I and mean, I think that's often to his credit like he he provides a useful uh, point of view from that approach but then watching Gavin Sheets's home run and I should say that I discounted him because I said the White Sox scored eight runs over uh, three games those nine runs they scored three I think I I, I mentally counted for that before Sheets' ninth inning homer and so I just filed that away in my brain but I, I did discount that so in case anybody was about to tweet me saying that uh, I screwed (laughs) up, like I I caught that myself, uh, thanks to Josh. But um, when Sheets hit the homer, like uh, he hit the kind of classic lefty uppercut swat. And, you know, usually, you know, if the ball's not carrying out to left, and I thought Anderson's didn't carry out to left, usually it means it's carrying out to right. Like usually... It's rare that the White Sox, you know, stadium is playing in such a way that it's carrying out strongly or in a defined fashion in both ways. But Sheets, you know, got a hanging slider, put a nice, good lefty uppercut swing on it. Ball went straight up uh, or not straight up. I mean, like had that kind of like home run launch and it just hung up there and hung up there and hung up there and just like dropped barely over the right field fence, barely inside the foul pole. And that's why I started to think like maybe the ball is dead this year like maybe it's just maybe that's part of it maybe it's you know partially you know a cold ballpark but also like those are two well-struck balls that did not leave the yard by much like you know and, and anderson's was robbed so if it did clear the fence it would have barely done it uh sheets barely cleared the yard grandal thought he got all of one that died in the warning track abreu's had five of them over the weekend that died so like maybe there is something to the fact that the you know the league is still wrestling with how it manufactures baseballs and nobody knows how to react to a ball when it's hit right now.
1: Hmm. Now I'm going to have to pay attention to the baseball itself because like I mentioned, a team slugging percentage at 384 should put you in the bottom third of Major League Baseball as a team and the White Sox are above league average slugging. Like we're not seeing power numbers across the entire league right now. Teams are struggling to hit for power. The poor Arizona Diamondbacks are hitting 152 as a team (laughs) champ. Yeah. And I I get that they don't have a lot of talent right now, but there are multiple teams that are not hitting above 200 right now. And if it is a dead ball, it's great that the White Sox are pitching as well as they are. Hopefully, Giolito comes back soon. Hopefully, Johnny Cueto can replace Jimmy Lambert in the starting rotation. And hopefully, Lance Lynn, everything is ready to go when he comes back. Because, with the type of starting pitching the White Sox have, if it is a dead ball, the White Sox are still going to be in good shape. But we may have to make adjustments on our preseason expectations for these White Sox hitters. And I guess everyone in Major League Baseball, that instead of the super bouncy ball that we saw in 2019, if they're almost hitting literally a rock that's coming at them right now uh, as the ball is not carrying. That's definitely something to pay attention to in the upcoming weeks. All right, let's talk about the pitching and the golden cog of the series, which is voted upon by our followers on Twitter, which you can follow us at Sox Machine, and you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. The player of the series is voted by you guys, and they get the golden cog of the series. And for this series, it is Dylan Cease who had another outstanding start against Tampa Bay on Friday, five and two thirds innings pitched three hits allowed, just one earned run walk two, and he struck out eight through two starts. Cease has 10 and two thirds innings pitched five walks to 16 strikeouts at a 1.69 ERA Jim, There was a lot of preseason hype about Dylan Cease possibly being a dark horse American league Young contender and through two starts, He's looking sharp.
2: Yes, although I would have voted for Michael Kopech just based on expectations. I think, like, with Cease, you know, my expectations have risen. And with Lynn and Giolito out, you know... I, I guess you yeah, know if you're pessimistic, you can say like, well, Cease is going to be exposed. He's not number one, but in this case, like this could be a case where like, oh, there's no spotlight to share. Like, just this is now his time to shine, and uh, when Giolito and Lynn come back, they can be reintroduced and, and eased in because Cease is shouldering the load right now. Whereas Kopech, um, you know, he was fascinating to me. Like, I, I think Cease is like, um, he's just picking up where he left off. The slider's good, the fastball's good. He can toggle them on and off depending on what he wants the changeup is weird uh still 18 miles per hour slower than his fastball like I still don't know I thought that was gonna be figured out like last year like somewhere in the middle of the summer like oh this is this is kind of like an EFIS pitch <laughs> and uh for some reason like he doesn't he does a good job I think and and Yasmany Grandal and uh you know his catchers whoever's catching him does a good job of um shielding it to where it's just something to be a third time through look um a a way to grab a strike you know he's not asking too much from him same thing with the knuckle curve although I think the knuckle curve has improved too but I think he's basically picking up where he's left off last year and it's great that he hasn't taken a step back or hasn't had the you know the injury bug hasn't bit him the way that uh it's it it's you know grabbed the other two right now but I think with Kopech like Kopech showed me what I wanted to see from his last start which was better fastball endurance in start like he had more life on it like he wasn't he was still around 95 versus the 93 he was showing late in the start still had the jump on it and the nice little ride um yeah, the slider was good and the curveball you know you talked about this with lawrence holmes about like what's going to be his third pitch Oh, it's the curveball it's good it's like it's it's fine like he can you know reminds me a little bit of uh you know, just the the kind of classic neutralizing downward plane, like, you know, I'm thinking like Cole Hamills or Gavin Floyd when he had it working just like, oh, that's, he mm-hmm. doesn't need a changeup. That's his pitch that neutralizes uh you, you opposite-handed hitters. Um, And the slider worked, you know, he was able to run that in on, on lefties, kind of like a cutter action, but when he needed the curveball, it was there. Changeup doesn't seem to need to be a factor right now. It'd be nice if he had it, but I think, you know, as, as far as he looks like this, I kind of treat him like Carlos Sedan in that if the fastball is running... And if the slider has great command early, then the, you know, the the knuckle curve, whatever you want to call it, is basically like just a second breaking ball that he can, you know, if he wants downward tilt, it's that pitch. If he wants horizontal action, it's a slider. And he can move easily between the two. And right now, through two starts, looks like he has that.
1: Curveball might be his second pitch moving forward, because in the start against Tampa, Kopech made 75 pitches, 46 fastballs, 17 curveballs. 12 sliders and we talked about called strike with percentage and again this is trying to calculate the percentage of a pitch that is getting the good outcome that a pitcher wants a strike not being fouled off not being put in play again the object of pitchers is to throw pitches and get strikes and not allow contact so if you eliminate the foul balls you get called strike with percentage His fastball, 37% against Tampa Bay. That's an 8% increase from Detroit. So he was more effective with the four-seamer. That's great. He even got nine whiffs out of his four-seamer. The curveball is at 41%, and that's elite territory for Major League pitchers with the called strike whiff rate. The slider is at 17%, and I'm wondering if the slider is just not effective right now for Kopech. So that's something I'm going to be paying attention to at his next start against Cleveland, Jim. Do we see more curveballs than sliders? Because if that's the case, well, Michael Kopech is a four-seam curveball guy who shows lefties a slider moving in the future. Yeah, And I, I think that a combination can work.
2: I think it depends on just how many lefties he sees. Um, yeah, you know, That just might be the determining factor for a given start, just uh, how hard he is going to be um you know, emphasizing the slider versus saying well uh situation dictates my curveball and i like it just as much so it could it could you know toggle from start to start but yeah the uh, curveball was there and you know it'd be great if you reach that row down level to where like you're not worrying about the third pitch you're not worrying about the changeup because like the breaking ball is just you i guess you can you can He gets three different breaking balls out of his breaking ball. Like with Rodon, he threw it like hard, like a cutter. You know, normal, like a slider. Like he he could throw it like ninety, he could throw it eighty four, he could throw it seventy nine. And I think with Kopech, he doesn't quite have that cutter uh, action on the slider, but he does have the you know eighty four and then seventy eight if he wants it. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. And as long as he's comfortable just switching between the two, uh, he could be in a case where like he could just be hard to compile a scouting report on. Maybe pitching coach, you think Hats
1: is trying to make Michael Kopech into the right-handed version of Carlos Rodon?
2: Maybe I mean, like the, it's a case where you know if you have that ability uh, <laughs> and you have the kind of power and the, the fastball life that that Kopech showed his second start to where like that that pitch is always there and can ride in and ride away to righties and lefties. Like that's a case where yeah, it's the eye levels already. On alert based on just how much fastball movement there is. So the breaking ball is flexible.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, bringing that point up, because if Rick Hahn goes to his coaching staff and his front office, knowing that Carlos Rodon's not coming back or they're not going to be aggressive in their offer because they're worried about health, and they ask the question, all right, who's going to replace Carlos Rodon? And if if Ethan Katz steps up and says, I think I can make Michael Kopek a Carlos Rodon. Well, you can't blame the results that Katz got out of Rodon last year. And if Kopech is a four-seamer with multiple breaking pitches, I mean, that's what Rodon was pretty much for the White Sox in his career, and it really panned out in 2021. I don't hate the idea. And you know what, Jim? Through two starts, I know that we're talking about the progression, and we are going into the data, taking deep dives on Kopech to track on how he's progressing going back as a starting pitcher for the White Sox. The dude has only allowed one earned run in his two starts. He's got a one ERA, and all of a sudden, Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech are asked to be the number one, number two starters in this starting rotation, and they're delivering in their first two starts. And then someone else that is also delivering for the White Sox that is a bit of a surprise out of the bullpen, Jose Ruiz. In four games, Ruiz has only allowed four hits, one earned run, which was a home run. He's only walked one batter but he has 7 strikeouts and he came up clutch in the White Sox Saturday win striking out the side and he's got a new trick Jim, mm-hmm. and it's on pitching ninja now a changeup
2: yeah <laughs> it's uh, uh I was looking at that just his usage you know in the in the 3 seasons where he's had measurable time with the White Sox and and really it's it's uh you know 2019 2021 2022 too like he he featured it early, but that was a case where he was just trying to get by. Like he was uh, unproven, hadn't really. Uh, he was kind of a roster casualty uh, when it came to options with the Padres and being squeezed off there, and then came into the White Sox with you know fewer options than you'd like, and he just had to try to get by. And he was just trying to get by with this changeup through it more often, but then like came back, thought I'll be a fastball. Uh, slider guy or fastball, curveball guy. Like he throws, you know, it's, it's classified as a curveball by some, whatever, it's just fastball, breaking ball. And that was fine for a limited role. Like, you know, I, I kind of paid attention to this all last year. Just Jose Ruiz and low leverage mop-up situations, garbage time with lead, garbage time trailing, great. Like need to throw him one or two innings. He got the job done. But like when it was like more important situations where hitters cared, and scouting reports were, you know, pored over, and maybe you know, uh, you know, pinch hitters were taken into account. Like you know, you'd go up to middle, medium leverage, and and the rare chances he got high leverage, just got conked in the head. Peter principal basically laid him out, and so he had to go back down to low leverage. And it's not a bad way to make a living because I think managers are always happy to have those guys who can just throw strikes and they compete. And when it doesn't matter. They're going to get through an inning, whether it's, you know, whether it takes 20 pitches or 30 pitches, they'll be fine. It's just a matter of whether it's 20 pitches and no runs or 30 pitches and three runs. And I think that's when Ruiz was planned against or tried against, uh, his fastball and curveball combinations just weren't that great to where, like, um, it, it, it mattered. So I think... That's why low leverage Jose Ruiz is fine, and and that's a living until you have an off where you add Kendall Graveman and you add Joe Kelly, and you have uh, you have um, you know Liam Hendricks there, and you have Aaron Bummer, and you have Garrett Crochet, and you think like, oh, there's a number game here, and I have no options, and so like, you know, are the White Sox going to trade me or outright me? And then it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. So I think. You know, there was a little bit of a crossroads for Ruiz, and I think Kelly's injury bought him a little bit of time before the White Sox had to consider it, and, and the 28-man rostered as well. But it's a case where, like, you got to show something different, and the changeup is definitely different. And it's it's very nice because, like, it takes stress off the fastball, and it seems like he can throw it for strike. So it's a case where, like, um, you know, if they're sitting fastball, all of a sudden they can't. And it's a nice pitch. Like, it's, it's a good speed difference like it's got nice tailing movement It doesn't seem to tip it really so it's working for the time being I just wonder you know if it's so great right now because it wasn't a factor in any scouting report to date and with the limited spring training limited looks like they're it's a case where maybe they just the scouting report is completely wrong on him and it's going to take a month of seeing how Ruiz uses it to see if they can find that tip or find that count that they they like it in or uh, just, you know, lefties, righties, what have you. But for the time being, it's a very nice pitch. It's a very nice way for him to differentiate himself from the Jose Ruiz that might have been a roster casualty uh, being out of options and being unremarkable in anything above uh, high leverage or, sorry, low leverage.
1: Well, hopefully he continues to stay hot because, again, seven strikeouts and his four appearances to just one walk Jose Ruiz looks much different than we've seen him in past years, and he's stepping up while Joe Kelly is out, and a lot of guys in the bullpen have also stepped up. Uh, I don't think Anderson Severino is going to last long (laughs) with the White Sox organization. (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, Aaron Bummer and Liam Hendricks, they're still going through their struggles, and we'll talk about that later in PO Sox. But Jim and I will preview the upcoming series as the Chicago White Sox now head to Cleveland for four games to face the Guardians next, after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data,
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. Next for the Chicago White Sox are four games at Cleveland, and they may see snow as the next couple of days are supposed to be wet in Cleveland. So for the White Sox hitters hoping for warmer temperatures, they will have to wait for the weekend in Minneapolis, which that forecast now calls for temperatures to be in the mid-50s to low-60s. The Cleveland Guardians were 4-2 and two and tied with the White Sox for first place, Before the weekend. Then they got swept by the San Francisco Giants, and they are currently four and five on the season. And of course, they have a three game losing streak at home now, waiting for the White Sox to arrive in Cleveland. What's been surprising for the Guardians is they're getting offense. They're averaging 5.44 runs per game, and there are four extremely hot hitters for the Guardians right now first baseman Owen Miller. Is hitting 500 with a 964 slugging percentage. Jose Ramirez, White Sox nemesis, has 15 RBIs already through nine games and, and is hitting 457 with a 500 on base percentage and slugging 886. You probably heard about Stephen Kwan. He's hitting 385 with a 541 on base percentage. And center fielder Miles Straw is hitting 333 with a 455 on base percentage for Cleveland. So four hot hitters going to be facing the White Sox. So circle these names as the pitching problems for the White Sox and Guardians Monday at 5, 10 PM central time, Dallas Keuchel tries to repeat his performance against Seattle against Cleveland and opposing Keuchel will be Shane Bieber on Tuesday circle this day. We're going to talk about this in a second here. Jimmy Lambert will be making the start tentatively right now against Tristan McKenzie, Wednesday at 5.10 p.m. Central Time. Dylan Cease will make his third start against Zach Plesak. And on Thursday, getaway day, this is a 12.10 p.m. Central Time start, Michael Kopeck will make his third start against Cal Quantrill. The reason I say circle Tuesday, because if Lucas Giolito passes his tests, he can come off the injured list for Tuesday. So be flexible on who's starting that game on Tuesday and cross your fingers that Lucas Giolito passes all the tests and the White Sox trainers are okay to clear him off the injured list. Gilito could be back for that start. But Jim,
2: what makes Cleveland interesting to you? Well, this feels like the most Cleveland they're going to be for the White Sox. Like you have... <laughs> You have four tough righties, or four righties who have given the White Sox hard times at times. Bieber, McKenzie, Pleaseac, Quantrill. Like McKenzie's been the uh, most erratic of all of them, but he's off to a decent start this year. Bieber's velocity is a little bit down, so like he's he's not racking up strikeouts like he used to. So we'll see if he's all the way back. But Quantrill looks uh, like his usual expectations-beating self. Pleissack looks fine, so. You know, you have four stout righties all in a row. So, you know, the White Sox have to pass that test. And then, you know, it's a matter, as you said, of the offense being top-heavy, hot and cold, um, uh, studs and duds, what have you. Just, it's, uh, you know, they're a weird offense that, like, the numbers on the season are fine, but they had four games in a row where they scored 17-10 and 10 against the Royals and then 10-7 and 7 against the Reds. But then they faced a good team in the Giants and scored four runs in three games. So it's like mm-hmm. you know the Reds are terrible. The Reds, uh, we had the question in P.O. Sox talking about like what's you know are there any uh, front offices that do more to insult their fans than the White Sox? And the Reds basically set the bar unreachable by telling, by giving fans <laughs> telling fans an opening day, uh, you know you know saying that the Reds are you know why are the Reds cutting payroll? Why you know why should I be interested? And and the response is where are they going to go? <laughs> yeah, which is just like. <laughs> I don't think the White Sox have ever said anything that bad. They've shamed them for not showing up. They've shamed, but like, when the when the White Sox have been bad, they haven't shamed, like, they, they backed off that. They, they 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 chose to appreciate the fans who showed up, but they never said, like, they knew why fans weren't coming when they were losing and cutting payroll. So so I think, uh, you know, to circle back to the PO Sox question, like, I just want to touch on that. Like, that's a new clubhouse leader for... Um, middle fingers to fans like i think that tops anything oakland's done with their whole uh las vegas flirtations i think you know that (laughs) that might be runner-up but just those two right now are basically like leaving you know giving the white Sox, you know giving jerry reinsdorf or kenny williams rick on ideas uh but right now i think you know the offense could be you know like if they face a a talented white Sox staff and you know the giants have a very deep and talented staff and the white Sox maybe aren't there right now with who's missing but could be close. Um that's a case where they might be giving the Guardians the same kind of fits. So I think it's a matter of like the White Sox match up well against the Guardians, the Guardians match up well against the White Sox and what kind of shakes out here um will be indicative I think of just how the rest of the season series will look. And I think the Guardians are flawed enough or at least like Right-handed starters don't phase the rest of baseball the way they might specifically torment the White Sox, especially a team missing Yohan uh, Mancata and A.J. Pollock and, and, and having like other guys who might be off their games like Grandal. So it's a case where like this is a good uh, full-strength matchup for the Guardians against the White Sox, and we'll see how resourceful the White Sox can be when maybe they're not their best.
1: This is the first divisional road trip of 2022. So this week as a whole is intriguing because they're going to have seven games against Cleveland and Minnesota. And the the Twins are also struggling a little bit coming out of the gate. They've had some tough matchups. I mean, the Dodgers flat out embarrassed them in in Minneapolis, and they followed it up with a tough series against the Boston Red Sox. So in the seven games, Jim, for the road ale central trip that they've got here to cleveland and minnesota how many wins would be satisfactory when we talk next monday
2: i would say you know four and three would be great just because you know they're right now leading they've they're off to a good start like this is the kind of early pace to where like yeah keep winning series keep winning weeks keep winning, you know splitting or winning um you know keeps you in the driver's seat so i think that's fine but i think you know, realistically, uh, I think just, you know, not knowing exactly how this week in stretch of uninterrupted games is going to affect the White Sox bullpen, because I think this is when they could start feeling it. Um, and then you have some maybe, uh, you know, weather interrupting it and such, and maybe how that, you know, changes how much they have to rely on a Jimmy Lambert like I could see three and four also being fine just based on who's getting healthy who's the ones taking the beating at a given start or a given day uh so like it's a case where you know I would say as long as they're not you know outclassed or you know if they split a series against Cleveland and lose a series against Minnesota like that's that's fine like that's you know it's it's April. <laughs> That's okay. So three and four is fine there. It's just more of a matter of, I think, like, you know, they're still a little bit dicey enough in certain situations and certain players are getting cold or cooling off to where, like, um, you don't want to you know, see them sit idle or struggle for another seven days because then it gets a little bit uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. I mean, if they go four and three, they're at 10 and six before their next off day, which, again, is going to be next Monday, the 25th. Before they have this seven-game homestand, three against Kansas City Tuesday through Thursday. Then they have this really weird four-game series that goes from Friday to Monday against the Angels. And the Angels right now are six and four, and they lead the American League West. And Kansas City, uh, I don't know what I don't know how to explain Kansas City right now uh, as far as how they're playing baseball at the moment. They're all over the place. If they could be if they could go four and three in this seven game road trip, I think that's great. And to be ten and six with those five games remaining in April, I think pretty much guarantees that the White Sox are going to have a winning record in the month of April and they're going to be able to quote unquote survive all of these injuries, not having Yohan Makata and Lance Lynn and Lucas Giolito for most of the month. And of course losing Garrett Crochet for the season. I think that is a huge win for the Chicago White Sox to be able to, I mean, if they go four and three against Cleveland and Minnesota, Jim, after going, you know, winning two out of three in Detroit to start the season, uh, I mean, they're already six and four against their division, and all 10 of those games were on the road. So those are all missed opportunities for Detroit, Cleveland, and Minnesota to land a punch early in this season. Mm-hmm. And demonstrate that, yeah, you're not going to run away with this division, Chicago White Sox. I mean, if they go 5-2 and two this week, I think that is a huge blow to the American League Central. And that is quite the statement from the White Sox to everyone in the division that we're not even at full strength and we're still whooping you. And we're whooping you on your home turf. But I'm with you that my expectations is 3-4 to four wins here. I'm expecting Cleveland to play the White Sox tough. And I'm expecting Minnesota to be fired up for that weekend, but we know how well the White Sox played against the Twins last year, and who knows, maybe the White Sox still luck out and Byron Buxton is still not available, and they don't have to face Byron Buxton still.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm watching with that series. Yeah, is that they they're trying to keep him off the injured list, but um, he's you know he's Byron Buxton. He gets hurt a lot. They have to be careful with him, uh, given just what he adds. So yeah, it's. Um, yeah, that's a a very uh, tell you a situation with there and um yeah, I'm looking just at their clicking ahead of their schedule. Yeah, I mean that's they didn't see Buxton all of last year. Then they miss him the opening series, and that's a case where they don't see the Twins until yeah July. So that's a case where they can just miss Byron Buxton for a year and a half if he goes on the injured list, and you know by June by the All Star break, like that's a case where yeah, it's a. Uh, um, you know, the division, you know, might not be in hand, but it could be in hand for at least the twins based on just, you know, Sonny Gray getting hurt, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, missing time. Like he's their, uh, April injury. So yeah, every team is starting to feel it. So as, uh, you know, as much as we fixate on Lynn and Giolito, like everybody's dealing with their, uh, injuries, their, uh, you know, even Detroit had Mize go on the injury list. Matt Manning looks like he's going to have to go there. Baez went there. So yeah, it's, uh, The White Sox, if they can get through, you know, multiple games over 500 in April, they're doing fine. And we're talking
1: about the White Sox kind of surviving here. This is an opportunity to flip the script for the White Sox. And if they want to be the ones to land the big blow early, this is the week to do it. Because again, they're free. And it's a bit unfair, but it wasn't originally planned like this. Again, the White Sox were planned to start the season at home against the Minnesota Twins until the lockout bumped those games. Their first 10 games against division opponents are on the road. And if they could walk away from those 10 division games and having a winning record, I think that is a big blow to Detroit, Cleveland, and Minnesota early Mm -hmm. to start the season. And hopefully that's what we're talking about next Monday when the White Sox have the off day. And, of course, we'll have Sox Machine Live. That is going to be on Thursday, April 21st. As we recap the series against Cleveland and then preview the upcoming series against the Minnesota Twins. And when we have more information about Byron Buxton, we'll have it for that episode. And fingers crossed again, keep an eye on that Tuesday start. Hopefully everything checks out for Lucas Gilito because he will be eligible to come off the injured list on Tuesday for the White Sox. It'd be great if he can make that start instead of Jimmy Lambert. That'll give me a little bit more confidence that maybe even the White Sox could win that series against Cleveland. But you guys had a lot of questions for us. So let's answer them next in P.O. Socks.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your
1: curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. And of course, the ones that get to ask the questions... Are our wonderful Patreon supporters, and if you don't support us on Patreon, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/SocksMachine. And for our Patreon supporters, again, thank you guys so much for your continued support. The first question, Jim, that we've got from our PO Socks mailbag comes from Scott Milburn, and Scott has a question that many people in the stands had. This question, sitting next to me in section 108. And he's asking what happened to the throwback uniform on Sunday. And with Alloy wearing red items, why not bring back the early 70s red pinstripes on occasion?
2: Well, it sounds like uh, if this story is related, that uh, it's going to be hard to uh, uh, come up with any more uniforms, much less the ones they have. Like there was a story in the uh, LehighValleyLive.com I believe that's the uh, Allentown Morning Call uh, website that's talked about the Phillies, how they did not have their cream uniforms, their alternate uniforms, uh, you know, the the red and blue font on the cream uh, on I like that jerseys uniform. and pants. Yeah, and uh, turns out that the in, in Pennsylvania, the Fanatics manufacturing facility is behind on creating those alternate uniforms, partially because of the lockout, partially because of the late signings. And then, you know, who knows if there's supply chains there as well, but apparently like just, uh, with, you know one of the casualties of the, um, you know, late, late, uh, free agency frenzy and everything like that is just getting everything in line is that, uh, apparently Fanatics is behind on its alternates. So That might explain why, you know, we haven't seen, you know, the 72s or or sorry, that the 83s might explain why, you know, the Southside jerseys aren't uh, in rotation right now. But um, that's my best guess right now, based on just how vague it is for other teams as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Scott. So we're going to see the white pinstripes and the, the road grays for a while. The White Sox, I don't think have even wore their black uniforms.
2: I don't mind it necessarily because I, I got logo fatigue during spring training when their upper bodies from like the you know chest up featured three different logos.
1: Yeah, it was weird.
2: Yeah, it's just the, you know, the I, I don't like all the mishmash <laughs> in spring training between the batter man on the chest and the uh, old English on the sleeve. And then they had the 1919 socks. And then you know, the year before they had the Batterman and socks logo on one cap. So I don't mind kind of narrowing it down for a couple weeks just to get back to core looks, I suppose. But um, yeah, that's, that might be just based on how the spring training looks. I think I've gotten out of hand.
1: Well, Scott, we'll see when these uniforms do come back for the white Sox. but right now it is the white pinstripes for home games. And it is the road grays for the road for the white Sox. right now. We'll see when they even get an opportunity to wear the black uniforms. They don't even have those right now. But thanks for your question, Scott. Our next question comes from Matt. And Matt wrote to us about Oscar Coloss. Any chance Coloss makes his major league debut this season, Jim? He's had an outstanding start to his year.
2: He's been great so far. I just think, you know, I'm not really setting expectations for him in terms of using this season for a springboard to the major leagues uh, before the end of the year until we see what he looks like in Birmingham. Because I think... uh, Double-A pitching with its, you know, better velocity, better stuff, more experience. I think it has a way of, like, I'm thinking like Yoelki Cespedes uh, last year to where, like, once he got the rust off in Winston-Salem, he was launching the ball. He was lifting the ball. He was, you know, hitting homers, triples, making most of his speed. When he got to double-A, he started striking out more. The walks dropped off, and he's hitting the ball on the ground. Basically, like anything, you know, any outcome pitchers wanted to get from him, they could. Like he still had a decent average, but the secondary skills or the secondary like offensive contributions dropped off. And we saw in the Arizona Fall League that just, you know, everything kind of fell off the rails. So I think with Coloss, I, I think we'll have a better idea of where he is, what his in season endurance is like. Uh by the time he gets to Birmingham, gets a few series in there, and then I, I think I'll have a better idea of just how uh you know how much we could expect from him as maybe a late season addition but so far like he's looked great and uh, I, I think you know right now he's delivering what Marco Patti said he would
1: yeah Yoki Suspidus looking at his numbers right now in Birmingham 270 batting average slugging 514 okay that's good the 300 on mm-hmm. base percentage is a bit worrisome he's got 13 strikeouts at two walks but we we kind of knew that there may be a strikeout issue. For Cespedes, Uh, Jose Rodriguez right now is hitting that Birmingham brick wall (laughs) to start the season, hitting 176 with a 243 on base percentage and slugging 265. And we heard so much about how well he performed last year for Kannapolis and Winston-Salem and how he did in the Arizona Fall League and how he was doing the minor league camp. And yeah, that brick wall in Birmingham really hits hard for some guys right now.
2: Yeah. has had a two homer game on Sunday. Nice. So yeah, it was good to see him break out like that. Yeah, I
1: But I agree with you, Jim Colossus. Let's get him to Birmingham first before having that question of if he could help the White Sox in 2022. But thank you so much for your question, Matt. Our next question comes from Alec and Alec wrote to us. How much longer do you think the bullpen can hold up covering 12 to
2: 15 outs? It's not what you want, but I think Tony Larusa and Ethan Katz have done a decent job with how they've uh, managed workloads. I think they've pushed Liam Hendricks a bit, but fortunately, I think that was one of the uh, reasons why I wasn't uh, upset that the game got out of hand with Ever Anderson Severino on the mound because, like, they didn't have to try to wring a win out of more Jose Ruiz and more Liam Hendricks or more Aaron Bummer as a way to get you know the the Hendricks bummer graveman ruiz even bennett souza yeah that that's uh portion of the bullpen some rest and uh I, I think you know if they had to keep going you know covering four innings a game it would be tough but i like what we saw from Cease and kopeck making those strides uh and, and kopeck looking like he could have easily like i, I think you know it, it was fine to pull him after five innings and 75 pitches uh i don't i don't Object to that decision, but I think like you know maybe a month from now, I think if we saw Larusa pull him, we'd say like what the hell is that about? Like just because he looked, uh, we wouldn't have given pulling him a thought uh, based on just how he looked, how crisp his stuff was, how uh, the hitters didn't seem to have any kind of bead on his uh, you know either his fastball or his breaking ball. So that's what you wanted to see from him. Keuchel's been fine so far, so I think the rotation's on the verge big picture you know at least you know uh, three-fifths of it of making the next step and then it's just a matter of how Giolito comes back Um, but I think they're in better shape like they're not in great shape compared to how a team usually is in mid-April but given the compromise situation of spring training in the early season and given the injuries elsewhere and given like how many other teams are struggling with bullpens like the Twins are a mess right now in their late innings. Um, yeah, I, I think I always go back to no team's problems are unique, and in this case, like every team is wrestling with these innings right now and, and trying to manage the uh, pushing starters too hard early versus trying to spare their bullpen. And I think the White Sox, based on what we've seen elsewhere, are are managing it pretty well as long as the like I would say if they if they have to go through this entire week where. Uh, the starters don't go more than five. I think we could see the strain start to show uh, by the end of the week, and you hope that the off day provides some relief. But if they get uh, a stride here or there, like if if Keuchel or um, you know Cease or Kopech or even like you know Jimmy Lambert surprises or Vince Velasquez surprises and goes like an inning longer than you think, and everybody else is on track, like I think that's all they need right now to keep this you know pretty good groove up.
1: Yeah, I, it would be nice to see Keuchel go 90 pitches for the White Sox on Monday. For Cease, I think he's ready for 95 pitches, if not 100 pitches in his next start. For Kopech, I think a good goal for him is 80 to 85 pitches. They're starting to ramp up nicely. And that's what you're hoping for, that by Memorial Day, they're at full strength. You know, we're talking about some outings where they're able to go up to 105 pitches and you're not worried about burning them out so early in the season. I agree with you, Jim. I think Tony La Russa and Ethan Katz are doing a very good job managing the pitching staff right now to start the season. Alec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Benny, and Benny is asking, power ranked the American League Central so far into the season. FYI, I will also be at the game Thursday in Cleveland, so if anyone else is going to be at the game on Thursday afternoon at 12 o'clock, in Cleveland to see the White Sox and Guardians. Find Benny in the stands and have yourselves a beer, take a picture and tag us on Twitter or on Instagram at Sox Machine. So Jim, let's power rank the American League Central. Uh White Sox first? Yes. <laughs> all right. From there. Okay. Woo. Uh all right. How how would you power rank the
2: other four teams then? I think number two, clear number two, Cleveland. I agree. distant on both sides. Gap between the White Sox and then gap between number three. Number three, I think, is still Minnesota because of the top-end talent they have. Um, I just, you know, I think it makes a big difference whether Buxton's healthy or not. And Sonny Gray, we'll see how they deal with that. But I think, you know, healthy Buxton or healthy enough Buxton, like, they're clear number three. Then I have Detroit four just because, you know, with losing Mize, with, uh, you know... It doesn't seem serious, I don't think, but you know, Manning and Mize, they don't know exactly how long they're going to be missing them. And I think they were pretty important to the Tigers' beating expectations in a meaningful way. Baez is on the injured list. Um, offense is still a bit scattered, although Torkelson seems to be making the kind of contact that uh, he wasn't making against the White Sox series. So he's starting to learn and be a little bit scary. But I think still they're... Their success or their breakout was predicated on this deep rotation. And right now, I think it's kind of showing the early strain. And then the Royals, I think, are just trying to find an identity right now. I think they're the team that doesn't really have anything functioning right now. So I think they're, they're kind of uh, cemented fourth. I, I just, I wrestle with third and fourth between the Twins and Tigers because I think the Twins look uglier than the Tigers at given points. But the Tigers are just they don't have the upside that the twins have when everything's working for them. so that's why I have them fourth.
1: It's really early, very early. nine games in for a 162 game marathon. But looking at expected win loss records, the White Sox expected win loss record is five and four, so they have they're overachieving by a game. Cleveland's expected win loss record is six and three. They are underachieving by two games. And again, it's those big blowout wins that they have that's really pushing their run differential. So I agree that Cleveland is number 2. I don't know about 3 through 5, Jim, because <laughs> these teams are in one group right now. And I I understand your argument putting Minnesota 3rd because of the top end talent. They have a game at Boston on Monday. And then for Detroit, they have a series against the Yankees. And Minnesota, after their game on Monday against the Red Sox, they come home and they have a series against Kansas City. So we're going to have a better understanding of those two teams uh, as the Twins will face the Royals at home before the White Sox come into town on the weekend for three games. So maybe it'll help power rank if we have this question for Sox Machine Live uh, (laughs) later in the week. But... Man, it's tough ranking these three teams. But I think I'm going to agree with you. I'll go with the Twins third. I don't feel good about that. The Tigers, even though they have a better record right now and they're a game ahead of Minnesota, they're 4-5, and the same record as Cleveland. I'll drop them to fourth because I have the same concerns that you have regarding as far as the, the injuries early. Kansas City has scored 25 runs in eight games. That's barely over three runs a game. That surprises me because I like their offense. They have allowed 41 runs. They're allowing an, an average of five runs per game. Now that may be sustainable for this Kansas city pitching staff <laughs> this year, but that is not a good combination where on average you're being outscored by two runs a game right now. They could really drop in a hurry if they don't figure out their offense And without that offense, they're not going to be very competitive this year. So I'll put them fifth, which I think they had expectations of maybe being a surprise team, but they're not off to a good start. Like I mentioned, I don't know what to make up, make of the Royals, but you know, through eight, nine games right now, Detroit has only scored 28 runs in nine nine games. The Minnesota Twins, despite all that top tier talent, have only scored 29 runs in nine games. Like, there is no offense. We, we just talked about at great length about how the White Sox offense is cold. These three teams' offenses are ice cold, and they're not doing a very good job on the run prevention side either, which is a terrible combination. So, Cleveland, congratulations. You're all by yourself in this Tier 2 of the American League Central uh, because Detroit, Kansas City, and Minnesota, in, if you're using a tier system, are clearly Tier 3 right now.
2: Yeah, it is, you know the ice cold is cooler than cool so
1: that is true outcast taught me that you know when you look around else in the american league you know toronto currently leads the east they're 6 and 4 boston is 5 and 4 the yankees lost a series against baltimore mm-hmm. i how i mean the yankees in 10 games jim have only scored 30 runs now they've only allowed 29 very low scoring games, but they're averaging three runs a game. That's shocking. Well, is how the left field in Camden yards? Maybe. I mean, <laughs> the Orioles, the Orioles have. <laughs> they basically
2: did that <laughs> they, for Glaber Torres. They've
1: they wrecked Glaber Torres by pushing the wall back. The Orioles have only scored 21 runs in nine games. Like, that is, again, offense is just down across Major League Baseball, but Baltimore's been doing a good job on the run prevention side. And, and Texas. So Texas is one of the teams that's scoring runs. And they're one of the teams that can't stop anyone. They've scored forty nine runs in nine games. They've allowed fifty nine runs in nine games. And
2: Oakland they can be spotted a run with an intentional walk yes. while the other team is trailing. I was that
1: all about? I can't believe yeah. I
2: can't believe Joe Batty did that.
1: Oakland's five and five. They got a plus 10 run differential. They've yet to play a home game. They have played 10 straight road games to start the season. Uh, same thing with the Astros. The Astros are going to be playing 10 games away from home before uh, before they finally get to play at Houston later this week for their home opener. Uh, and the Astros are 5-4. and four. The Angels currently lead the West right now. They are 6-4. and four. They have won three straight games. So in the American League, it's, it's just been an odd start to the season.
2: Yeah. But the White Sox have the best record against teams with the records of 500 or better. There you go. Woo! So there, So doesn't really matter how they're doing it as long as they're doing it. I think you know it's kind of baby steps. First is to do it and then to do it in a way that's visually appealing.
1: Absolutely. So, Benny, thank you so much for your question and have a great time on Thursday. I hope Michael Kopech dominates and you get to witness a White Sox winner. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Sox. If you have a question or topic for us that you would want us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast on Mondays, the only way to do it is by becoming a Patreon supporter. And you can do so at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the ability to ask us questions on the Monday podcast and also the MOP draft reports. And we also answer every PO Sox question for our Patreon supporters. So they get an extended version of Monday's podcast. They also get an ad-free version of both the podcast and the website when they log in with their Patreon account on SoxMachine.com. And they get the first opportunity to purchase our new Sox Machine swag or also receive it as well when we do have it on hand. And you can all get this starting at $2 a month and save with an annual plan. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash Machine. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll have the White Sox wake-up calls for you in the upcoming days to recap the games that happen in Cleveland. Again, we'll have Socks Machine live for you this upcoming Thursday to recap the series and preview the upcoming weekend series in Minneapolis and recap all of the games and bring you continued analysis on SoxMachine.com also subscribe to the future socks podcast which there'll be a new episode on tuesday one of our best friends of socks machine and future socks jim Callis of mlb.com will be joining mike rakin and james fox so if you haven't subscribed to the future socks podcast you can subscribe to the future socks podcast where you subscribe to the socks machine podcast and listen to new episodes on tuesday The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently.